Well, this morning we continue in our series in Philippians. Last week we were considering those who serve Christ well. The Holy Spirit presented us with essentially three character studies of those who walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. These three, Timothy, Paul, and Epaphroditus, were held out as an example for us to know what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. They served willingly, faithfully, trusting in the sovereignty of God, were giving to others, rejoiced always, were trustworthy and sacrificial. These were just the traits that were obvious in reading of their example from the text, but certainly it was not an exhaustive list of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We also discussed that the quality of service that we offer to the body of Christ ought to resemble the fervency of boiling water. In other words, our service is not to be a one-and-done kind of thing. It is not to be an occasional, when I feel like it, kind of thing. It is to be a constant active kind of thing. In fact, Romans 12 tells us that we ought to outdo one another in love. Well, what drives that kind of attitude? We know that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We see the quality of what that looks like. But what drives a person who serves that way? What is the underlying attitude that seeks to outdo our brothers and sisters in Christ in love? Well, as we continue into chapter 3 this morning, the Holy Spirit reminds us that what drives that attitude that seeks to outdo one another in love, the attitude that seeks to work out our salvation, the attitude that wants to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel is the conviction that Jesus Christ is worth it. He is worth it. We rejoice in him. We delight ourselves in him. We have been given his righteousness. Thus, we pursue his righteous standard. To state it plainly, we will be encouraged this morning to seek, by the way we live, the righteousness of Christ. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, if you haven't, and we will consider verses 1 through 11 this morning. I'll read that together. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let us pray. Our Father, once again we come before you, um, before your word. We thank you for your word, which sanctifies us. We pray, Father, today that you would help us as we come before your word to understand, help us to be convicted, help us to be strengthened and exhorted, help us, Lord, to behold wonderful things from your word this morning. We pray, indeed, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively, that they would be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, this is the start of a new section in the letter. We just concluded one rather long section. This is the start of a new section in chapter 3. We are called to rejoice in the Lord. And this chapter, this section is going to run from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 19. Just by way of reminder, as we think broadly about the letter to the Philippians, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, we saw Paul's greeting. In verses 3 through 11, we saw Paul's praying. In verses 12 through 26, we saw Paul's reporting as he shared with us about his ministry. In verses 27 through chapter 2, verse 18, we saw Paul's exhorting. He exhorted us, again, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, we see Paul's praising as he, again, holds out those three character studies of those who walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And now we return back to Paul's exhorting in this section. And the main theme of the last major section was to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. The main theme in this longer section, chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, verse 19, is to rejoice in the Lord. That's going to control this entire section. Again, we've talked about this before, that Paul's desire is for them to have joy. And we're coming back to that in this, this longer section, this last long section in the letter. Well, again, chapter 3 begins with this command to rejoice in the Lord. And Paul is going to talk with us about how we can rejoice in the Lord throughout. In this section, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, that we're going to look at this morning, we're exhorted to rejoice in the Lord by seeking the righteousness of Christ. After he gives us that initial command in, in verse 1 to rejoice in the Lord, we see that in order to seek the righteousness of Christ, we must first reject those who delight in the flesh. It's in verses 2 through 6. And second, we delight ourselves in the value of Christ. Reject those who choose, who try to delight themselves in the flesh, in their fleshly accomplishments, and instead delight yourself in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Seek after his righteousness. Be careful that you do not follow after those who delight in the flesh. Instead, delight yourself in the righteousness of Christ. That's the message for chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Well, let's look at chapter 3, verse 1 again. Again, in this new section, we're exhorted initially here to rejoice in the Lord. Paul says, finally, my brothers... And he says, finally, there, and people always joke about preachers saying, finally, right? You know, when 
they say finally, they don't really mean finally. They mean just, you know, hang in there. It might be a couple more hours. <laughs> finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Again, it is a good time to think on and to be reminded that Paul's desire is that the believers at Philippi rejoice in the Lord. We began, as we began looking at this letter, we discussed that this church had become very dear to Paul. Paul and this church had begun a relationship with each other when he went and shared the gospel with them and established the church. And they continued that relationship with Paul by seeking him out. They sought him out to be able to support him in the ministry. This encouraged Paul. It brought joy to him as this was one of the only churches that constantly and consistently reached out and supported him throughout many of the most difficult seasons of his ministry. Again, at the time of this writing of the letter, Paul was sitting in prison. And so Paul is writing from prison, writing to encourage them. Paul, for his part, desired to show love and care for them. He knew that they were going through a number of difficulties. He could not be with them personally. And so he sought to encourage them in the Lord by sending them this letter. And again, he's returning to that most basic truth of the letter, that main theme of the letter, that of joy. I'll remind you of my definition of joy. Biblical joy is the work of the spirit, which causes us to delight in God and in the things of God. I said previously, it is God-focused, it is God-sourced, and God-sustained. It is a stirring of the affections toward God and his affairs. This is why we can rejoice in the Lord always. Because it is not a matter of human affairs, nor does it matter of human effort. Biblical joy is of the Lord and about the Lord. It is delighting in the Lord. Again, it is a stirring of the affections towards God. Biblical joy then is a matter of both man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. Remember, we discussed that before when Paul exhorted us to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God gives us of his Holy Spirit and part of the fruit of the spirit is joy. But we're also commanded to rejoice in the Lord. And that is often accompanied with additional instruction. Thus, we can conclude that joy is both a product of the Spirit's work and it is a result of part of our effort in the Lord, part of our responsibility. Rejoice in the Lord. That is a command. We are commanded to rejoice in the Lord. This is a command that we must obey and a command that we can obey because the one who began a good work in us will be what? He'll be faithful to complete it. I love this quote from St. Augustine. He said, command what you will and then give what you command. Command what you will and then give what you command. We are commanded to rejoice and he gives us the ability to rejoice through his work in the Holy Spirit. Well, again, how do we rejoice in the Lord? I think that typically when we hear that, we think we should be singing songs of praise, right? When we, think, when we hear rejoice, we think sing. When you hear rejoice, I want you instead to think to delight yourself in the Lord. I think that's more accurate. Delight yourself in the Lord. To use a very basic illustration, how do you delight yourself in your favorite meal? You prepare it, or someone else does, that's even better. You sit down with it, you get your utensils, you carve it up, you take slow bites, you savor every bit of it, right? Once you're done, you kind of sit back and just enjoy it and let it digest. How about delighting in your favorite song? You might 
want to remove all distractions, you put in earplugs or noise-canceling, some kind of noise-canceling device so you can hear only that. You shut out everything else, maybe even ask other people to pipe down a bit, right? You sit down, you put your head back, and you let it play. Sometimes you let it play over and over again. Perhaps a gift that you really like. When you get a gift, and you know it's going to be a good one, maybe it's a really big gift package, you take your time opening the package, right? You peel open the box. You take it out very carefully. You kind of hold it up. You, you do one of these numbers where you look at it, and you, maybe you put it in a very prominent place in your home so that you can see it. You make sure that no one messes with it, no one touches it. You know, the fine china you got in the closet that you never use. Whatever it is that you're taking delight in, you take your time with it. You remove all distractions so that you can enjoy it. You keep others away from it so that it doesn't get damaged. You partake in it as often as you can. You ingest it. You chew on it. You meditate on it. You dwell on it. You take it out. You look at it and admire it. And more often than not, you end up telling somebody else about it, how good it is. I think that's the idea here. Paul is exhorting them to delight themselves in the Lord. To enjoy the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Delight yourself in him. And don't let anyone take that away from you. Rejoice in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. He says, first, we have to remove some distractions. He says, I've told you these things before, but I'll tell you again. It's no problem for me, and it's better for you if I remind you. It's always good to remind people of what's good and right and true. This is for your joy in the Lord. Well, that leads us to that first main point again. Reject those who delight in the flesh. Look again at chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. Again, Paul says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers, the ones who mutilate the flesh. In the previous section, in reference to Timothy, Paul said that there are those who seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. I think that those of that verse are the same as the ones he's mentioning here. He's also going to say in verse 18, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's building another picture, another set of characteristics of those who do not walk in a manner worthy of Christ. In this case, Paul is likely referring to those who have been referred to as the Judaizers. This group were, were likely made up of Jews, many of whom may have professed to be believers but were likely, likely not truly believers, not truly trusting in Christ alone. He describes them as those who mutilate the flesh. And then in the next verse, he says, we are the true circumcision. In other words, circumcision was a main point of their theology. You must be circumcised. You must adhere to the Jewish law in order to be complete, in order to truly be recognized as believing in a Jewish Messiah. That was a contention, likely among other things. Keep the law, affirm the law, abide by the works of the law. In contemporary lingo, do good enough and you'll be acceptable to God. Isn't that what people commonly think? 
If I do good enough, if I am true enough to myself, then I will achieve great virtue and be accepted into whatever heaven I conceive of. If I walk enough little old ladies across the road, if I give enough to my church or some other philanthropic activity, if I am nice enough to my neighbors, or at least better than the next person, you know, not like those really awful people, those evil people who end up on the news as terrorists or shoot up a school, or maybe those really evil people who try to take away my right to murder unborn babies or who don't celebrate me with my latest Next gender reveal for myself. As long as I'm better than those people, I do better than those people, then I'll make it into heaven, right? I'm good. Paul refers to the folks he's talking to as dogs, evil workers, those who mutilate the flesh. And these are clearly not intended to be flattering terms. You don't play with wild dogs. You don't play with people who do what is clearly defined as evil and certainly not with those who would mutilate flesh. He intends for these terms to cause alarm, to warn the believers at Philippi that these are not people to be trifled with. You should have nothing to do with them. While they preach a message that says they are the circumcision, you must be circumcised, that you will not be acceptable to God. Apart from that, Paul says to the contrary, we are the circumcision. We who? Well, again, look at the text. We who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. They are the false circumcision. We are the true circumcision. Here's a principle they don't understand. True circumcision is a matter of the heart. It's not external. Even in the law, this was foreshadowed. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Moses says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Paul states plainly in Romans 2.29, but the Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The dogs, the evil workers, the ones who mutilate the flesh and encourage others to do the same, they focus on external works to be justified by God. And Paul says they have it all wrong. Listen again to what he says in our text. He says, we are the true circumcision. We worship by the spirit. This is reminiscent of the words of Jesus to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. He says, woman, an hour is coming and now is when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the father. But true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We worship in the spirit of God. The spirit of God has been poured out on us in Christ. If you do not have the spirit of God by faith in your worship, whatever that looks like is worthless. We worship by the spirit. We glory in Christ Jesus. What does he mean by that? Well, again, all of what he's about to say to glory in Christ Jesus is to boast in him. It is to delight in him. It is to glorify him. He is our focus. And of course, he is our focus precisely because we have life in him and in him alone. When he came to faith in Christ, God opened our eyes to see his glory in Christ. Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's how we come to know God. That's how we are believers in God, through Jesus Christ and through Christ alone. 
We're made to see him and to glory in him, to boast in him. 1 Corinthians 1.31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We glory in Christ Jesus. To emphasize that further, Paul says in our text, we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Again, the Judaizers say that you must do this in order to be acceptable to God. Your works, your actions, your obedience to the law is what seals your salvation from God. Paul says no. We put no confidence in the flesh. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. He even goes on in chapter 3, verse 10 to say, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. If you seek to live by the law, then you have to keep all of it. If you break any of it, then you're under a curse for all of it. You are a lawbreaker. Moreover, he says, it is evident that no one is justified by the works before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Not only can we not be justified by the works of the law, because none of us can keep all of the law, and we're under a curse if we break any of the law, but God has already clearly established that the righteous live by faith. In other words, again, the Judaizers got it all wrong. There's no way for us to be justified by the works of the law or any works of the flesh. Don't get drawn in by them by putting confidence in your ability to do good enough. You will never be good enough. Now, that flies in the face of popular psychology, the popular ideology of self. You, you just can't say that nowadays, right? You can't say that to your children. You can't say that to another person. You dare not say that to yourself. But the Bible says that to all of us. You cannot be good enough for God. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. These are the words of the Bible, not mine. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It's Romans 3, 10 through 12. Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You will never be good enough. It'll never happen. You cannot do enough good. You cannot perform enough good works. Usually these are the works that we think are good anyway. But you cannot even keep the law of God for those who are religiously minded. This applies to Protestant, Catholic, any denominations, any religions. Doesn't matter. You'll never be good enough on your own. In fact, you have to come to the point of believing that before you'll ever understand the salvation of God. Again, essential to understanding the gospel message is what Paul says in Romans. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ came because we were sinners. He died while we were sinners. God's love is on display for us while we're sinners, not while we're good people. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save the sinners. Unless you understand yourself to be a sinner, you have no part in his salvation. Back in our text, Paul says again, they have it all wrong. But if they want to compare pedigree, if they want to say something about something, say something about circumcision, if they think that, that somehow makes them significant in the eyes of God, I can show you significance. I can boast in my pedigree, Paul says. This is the false pride of the circumcision. 
verses 4 through 6. Though I myself might have reason for confidence in the flesh, again, and he goes on, if anyone else thinks they have reason, I have far more. Paul says, I had it all, humanly speaking. If we want to have, talk about having confidence in the flesh, confidence in abiding by the works of the law, I can talk about that. I was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law. I am of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I can trace my lineage, my ancestry. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. He likely knew Hebrew and was familiar with the Hebrew culture. He says that as to the law, I was brought up in the sect of the Pharisees. One of the most strictest sects of the Jewish faith, even to the extent that I persecuted the church when I was first born. To the early church, Paul was a terrorist. But you all know that story. Again, as to righteousness, he says, as to the law, I was blameless. He's not claiming perfection there, just that he basically kept all of the law. He kept it as well as he could have. He says, they don't really know what circumcision is about. I know circumcision. I know the law. And also for that reason, I know that seeking to keep the law is fruitless. And it won't lead to the righteousness of God. And that brings us to the next point. Again, taking a step back at the big, take a look at the big picture. You need to delight yourself in the Lord, Paul says. Seek after his righteousness. In order to do that, you have to put away foolish notions that you can be good enough for God. Put away those foolish thoughts, that foolish ideology that you can do enough to earn God's favor. Don't let those who seek to put confidence in the flesh influence you. I know what it's like to put confidence in the flesh, to seek even to keep the law of God, and I know that it's fruitless. We've got to put those things aside. Remember that true circumcision is worship in the spirit of God. It's glorying in Christ Jesus, and it's putting no confidence in the flesh. I'm grateful he didn't end his argument there, but he presses in further. There is an unfortunate caricature of Christianity that only gives regard to the things that we shouldn't do. People often see Christians as those who often shake their fingers at them and say, this is what you shouldn't do. You're doing it all wrong. But there's more to it than that. And Paul shows us there's more to it. It's not just about talking about the things we shouldn't do, but it's about focusing on what we should do. It's not just about pushing away all of the things that are wrong, but embracing the things that are good and right and true. And he does that here. We reject those who delight in the flesh, but we also instead delight in the supreme value of Jesus Christ. Look again at the text in verses 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We delight in the supreme value of Jesus Christ. We do that first by considering him as more important than anything else. Look again at his argument in verses 7 through 8. Paul uses the word count three times in those two verses. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss. 
He says, I have counted, regarded, considered. I think about it this way. This is a conscious, active consideration. It is a conscious, active consideration of the whatever gain I had of verse 7 and the indeed everything of verse 8. The whatever gain I had refers back to his human efforts for righteousness. And everything else refers to everything else. In other words, all things Paul considers to be loss. The ideas of gain and loss here, in case you didn't pick up on it, are accounting terms. It's almost as if Paul is doing an accounting, an audit of his life. He's adding up his income and expenses to see how things balance in the end. The things that were gain, and really that's everything else. He says everything else now. I count as loss. More than just in the loss column, he says, I count them but rubbish. So they are in the loss column in Paul's mind, but not just in the loss column. He says that they're rubbish. If you've ever heard a sermon on this passage, you know that people will refer to dung. And maybe it's that way in some translations, the word that he uses for rubbish. The point is that it's something completely and totally undesirable. It's useless to him. So all of his previous accomplishments in the flesh and everything else in his life that he has now lost for Christ's sake, he counts as loss. It's rubbish. It's completely undesirable to him in comparison to something else. In comparison to, as he says in verse 7, Christ. He says, for the sake of Christ. And in verse 8, in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, everything else is in the loss column and Jesus alone stands in the gain column in Paul's ledger. Knowing Christ is of surpassing value, of a greater value than anything else in his life. He says there's nothing greater, nothing more prized to possession, no one more central or significant than Jesus Christ himself. He says, that's my conviction. Jesus is in a category in Paul's mind and his heart that no one else and nothing else can ever come close to. In fact, again, everything else is worthless by comparison. We understand the idea of what it means to know Biblically, to know biblically is more than just having an intellectual knowledge. It's having an intimate, personal, experiential knowledge of something. Paul talks about us being in Christ in the first chapter of Ephesians. The same idea of being in Christ has to do with relationship identification. The fact that Paul says in Colossians 3 that Christ is our life. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus says this as he's praying to the Father. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Paul says this knowledge of Christ, this intimate relational knowledge, is of greater value than anyone and anything else in my life. This is how I think of Jesus. I've suffered the loss of all things for Jesus' sake, but it's okay Because really, he's more important than anything else. This is how we all ought to think of Jesus. In fact, this is the will of God for us. One of my favorite passages in one of my favorite books in Colossians, it's just the next book over, 
Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this, that we are to be joyously giving thanks to the Father in verse 12, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, because he has transferred us, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he goes on to talk about the Son. He, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created for him. That means you. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is the desire of God the Father, all of what God has done in the life of Jesus Christ, he has done so that Jesus Christ would have first place in everything. In your life, in my life. Does he? Do you consciously, actively think of Jesus Christ that way? Is he of greater value to you than anyone or anything else in your life? Do you consider all other things as worthless in comparison to him? If not, then you are not worthy of him. Jesus' words in Matthew 10, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you think of Jesus that way? Is he your greatest treasure, your relationship with him of greater value than anyone or anything else in your life? If not, then what's more important than Jesus? What would you rather have than him? What's more significant than him? Who is more significant? Your human accomplishments, your religious pedigree, your education, your money, your possessions— Other people, your health, the health of your family, things like sex, gender expression, what you do with your body, are those things more significant? Paul's point in these verses is that he thinks of everything in his life in light of his love for Christ, in light of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Everything in your life, every person in your life is either enabling you to love Jesus more or preventing you from loving Jesus more. Let me ask the question this way. If you never receive another good thing, and if all the good things that you currently have were taken away, but you were still a Christian, would that be enough for you? Could you still rejoice in the Lord? Think about that. I think most of us struggle with that if we were honest. And the reason is that we have mistaken the goodness of God, the good things that God gives for the goodness of his presence. We have allowed the gifts to occupy the place of the giver in our hearts. I'm going to read an extended quote from A.W. Tozer. Just listen in. 
Before the Lord God made man upon the earth, he first prepared for him a world of useful and pleasant things for his sustenance and delight. They were made for man's use, but were always meant to be external to the man and subservient to him. But sin has introduced complications and has made those very gifts of God a potential source of ruin to the soul. Our woes began when God was forced out of his central shrine and things were allowed to to enter. Within the human heart, things have taken over. Men have now no nature, now by nature, no peace within their hearts, for God is crowned there no longer. But there in the moral dusk, stubborn and aggressive usurpers fight among themselves for first place on the throne. There is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things and we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. God's gifts take the place of God and the whole course of nature is upset by this monstrous substitution. He says to the contrary, the way to a deeper knowledge of God is through the lonely valleys of soul poverty and abnegation of all things. The blessed ones who possess the kingdom are they who have repudiated every external thing and have rooted from their hearts all sense of possessing. I think that was very well said. The point is that a large part of our problem as we think about loving Jesus Christ and delighting ourselves in him is that we love and delight in too many other things. So we struggle with that. And those things take the place of Christ in our heart. Asaph said in Psalm 73, the nearness of God is my good. Is that your conviction? Moving on again, in our passage, we are encouraged to delight in Jesus Christ, to consider him our prized possession in life. No one and no thing else comes close. We are to consider him as more important, but we're also to consider the benefits of knowing him. Look again at the text, verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, of all the things that I could want, this is what I want the most. I want to grow in my relationship with Christ. I want to know him more. I point out that there is a progressive nature to our relationship with Christ, and that makes sense, right? We rarely get to know all of what we can know about a person in a single interaction. There is a progression. That's always true about anyone we know. 
He says, to know Christ is to know the righteousness of God. I preached from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 on Good Friday, speaking of the great exchange that we have in Christ, his life for ours, his righteousness granted to those who have faith in him. Understand that the language of righteousness is more akin to a legal definition than anything else. To be righteous is to be right with respect to the law. In other words, not to be a lawbreaker, thus to be free from any penalty of the law. It is to be viewed from the opinion of the court as being not guilty and being a law-abiding citizen. It's not just that you don't do bad things, but also that you do good things. That is what it is to be righteous. We are not righteous by nature. We are lawbreakers, but Jesus is righteous. The Bible calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. He always obeyed the law of God, the law of his father. Through faith, trusting in Christ, depending on his righteousness, means that our forgiveness is gained through the righteousness of Christ. Because he did what was right, we are now forgiven. Because he died on the cross and our wrong, our sin was laid on him, we are now forgiven. We are forgiven and we are, in fact, clothed with his righteousness. That's why Paul says in the text that there is a righteousness that comes from God. We receive this by faith in Christ and by faith in him alone. Paul says, I don't want to try to live as though I can be right with God on the basis of my own seeking to be righteous because I can't do it. I know I can't do it. I can't keep the law. I would be under a curse. I would remain under a curse. I would be sentenced to eternal condemnation for breaking the law of an eternal God. I'm going to trust in Jesus because I know that he always kept the law. This is what it means to know Jesus. It is to have faith in him. It is to be given the righteousness from God for his sake. But he goes on from there. It's more than that. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection here is with reference to the resurrection power of knowing Christ. That is a present day resurrection power. In other words, Paul is talking about the newness of life that we are granted by faith in Christ. We touched on that from Romans 6. I read that before. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. In other words, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are clothed with his righteousness. We're also given new life to live. We're born again. And that new life that we're given to live, we are able to, because of that new life, say yes to righteousness and no to sin. Previously, we were slaves to sin. Now we are able to say yes to righteousness and no to sin. That is the power that is at work in us. That is the resurrection power at work in us. Through the Holy Spirit, God is, as he says in Romans 8, conforming us to the image of his son. We come to know him by faith again, and then the spirit gets to work sealing us and producing fruit in us so that we can walk in that new life. But there's more. Again, as we're taking out this gift and delighting in Jesus, we're looking at it from multiple different facets, right? There's more, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings being conformed to his death. To know Christ is to trust his righteousness. It is to be given new life through the Holy Spirit, which works to conform us to the image of Christ. And as we're being conformed more to the image of Christ, that involves us sharing in his sufferings. 
He said earlier in the letter, it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. This suffering is the kind of suffering that happens to any believer who desires to live in a manner worthy of Christ. We suffer because Jesus did. We suffer as we represent him. This is certainly not sharing in the sufferings of Christ that brought our salvation. We can't do that because we're not Jesus. But insofar as we represent him in the world, just as the world hated him, so it'll hate us. Paul says to Timothy, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. That's going to happen. That's what he's talking about here. We don't like to suffer for any reason. But suffering for the name of Christ is one of the ways by which we're conformed to his likeness. But there's more. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is, of course, the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal in knowing Christ is to have his resurrection power ultimately end in our resurrection. We live because he lives. Those who believe in him, as he said to Mary and Martha, will never die and they will be raised up on the last day. That is our ultimate hope. That is the hope to which the Christian gospel and the whole Christian faith rests. We'll get to this truth more in the coming weeks. To know Christ is to trust in his righteousness alone, for that is the righteousness which comes from God. That is the righteousness that the judge gives to mankind. It is to know his resurrection power. It is to share in his sufferings. It is to be raised with him. To know Christ is not a one-time moment. It's not a one-time event. It's an ongoing and progressive sequence of events and things in the life of a Christian. Knowing Christ involves pursuing Christ, just as knowing any individual involves a continual pursuit. I'll give you another quote from Tozer. He's spot on with this. The modern scientist has lost God amid the wonders of his world. We Christians are in real danger of losing God amid the wonders of his word. We have almost forgotten that God is a person and as such can be cultivated as any person can. It is inherent in personality to be able to know other personalities, but full knowledge of one personality by another cannot be achieved in one encounter. It is only after long and loving mental intercourse that the full possibilities can be explored. He says all social intercourse between human beings is a response of personality to personality grading upward from the most casual brush between man and man to the fullest, most intimate communion of which the human soul is capable. Religion, so far as it is genuine, is in essence the response of created personalities to the creating personality, God. Christian, you may know Christ, but do you also understand that your whole life is a process of knowing him more? And do you approach it as such? Perhaps part of the reason why you don't value Jesus as you ought is because you've given up on that pursuit. You've given up on that pursuit to know him more. And so when it says rejoice in the Lord, you don't know what that means. You struggle with that. You don't feel compelled to delight in him, to think on who he is and what he has done. And so you also don't have the desire to serve him. Well, again, we are commanded to rejoice in the Lord. We do that as we seek the righteousness of Christ, as we delight in his righteousness. Put away distractions, any other notions of boasting in your own accomplishments or possessions. Take a good long look at Jesus. 
delight in him as having supreme value over whole and keep delighting in him as he is conforming you more to his image. Keep thinking on his goodness and all the different ways that he is at work in your life. Rejoice in the Lord, beloved. Delight yourself in the Lord. Again, that is a command. May the Lord make it true for us, both for his glory and our good. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for your word, which is true. Your word, which sanctifies us. We pray, God, that you would sanctify us by these truths that we heard this morning. God, that you would help us to rejoice in the Lord Jesus, that you'd help us to meditate on him, to think on him, on his person, on his work, on his goodness, on the salvation that he has wrought. Help us to think on all the different ways that he is at work presently in our lives. Help us to delight in him and in his work. Father, use that delight to fill our hearts with joy. Help us, God, to glory in our Redeemer, we pray in Christ's blessed name. Amen.